You are listening to National Security Law Today. We're recording this podcast on the third month of Putin's attack on Ukraine and the 28th month of the COVID-19 pandemic. We're learning that power is vested in the country that controls the supply chain and the flow of information. If we face a hostile world where China and Russia may assault our democracy by any means possible, what do we do to protect our interconnected systems and our critical infrastructure in the interests of national security? Welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security. I'm Elisa, here today with a head cold, as well as my dear friend, Harvey Rishikoff, friend of the cast, who has held a lot of titles in Washington. And today we're going to go into our continued series on supply chain and national security with a walk through the cyber supply chain issues that face one of the sectors that's really being noticed for the first time during the Ukraine war by a lot of people, or certainly it's been elevated in their consciousness, and that's the energy sector. Our guest this week is Sherry Caddy, who authored the report on cyber supply chain for the Department of Energy, and she is, in our opinion, an expert. So Sherry, we're really glad you're here. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. And of course, uh, Harvey, longtime confidant and collaborator in matters of supply chain. I just do want to clarify that the Department of Energy, in response to Executive Order 14017, America's Supply Chains, elected to overachieve related to the direction that we were given in that executive order to write a one-year study of supply chains that are critical to the energy sector. The Department of Energy leveraging its unparalleled resource for research and development, that is the National Laboratories, ended up writing an overall clean energy supply chain strategy, as well as 13 different topics for deep dive analysis, everything from solar to photovoltaics to rare earth elements to microelectronics to cybersecurity and digital components. So I am the principal author for the cybersecurity and digital components report, uh, which I'm happy to talk about. But uh, of course, I don't want to take any of the attention away from the other 13 reports, which represent an amazing body of work. Everyone should read them. I'm sure there are people who will read every single one of them. So we'll probably end up hyperlinking them in the notes to the podcast. And frankly, if you had the time, it would probably be pretty smart to do that. But let's set forth what the issues are. First of all, let's be very clear with the listeners. What constitutes the energy sector? And that is a really great question because the energy sector is, of course, one of the critical infrastructure sectors outlined in Presidential Policy Directive 21 way back several years ago. It really is a quite broad and diverse sector. And a lot of the programs and engagement of the Department of Energy tend to be somewhat stovepiped by subsector, whether it's electricity or oil and natural gas or, or renewables or nuclear energy. And one of the key parts of the series of Department of Energy supply chain reports is to develop this concept of the energy sector industrial base, really bringing together all of the stakeholders, the fulsome set of all of the different subsectors that I 
mentioned, but also positioning us as the department to really begin to bring in new stakeholders that will be represented by distributed energy resources and renewable technologies as we begin to move to the modern grid of the future, the decarbonized grid of the future. We're going to have a lot more different stakeholders coming in to our sector. So, so formally defining the energy sector industrial base to include all of those folks reflects the supply chain concern that is really distributed widely among stakeholders. This is a distributed risk situation where we have to define all of those folks that are owning that risk and approach them collectively to be able to make advancements in this area. Thank you so much, Sherry, and great to see you. Our audience can't, but I can, and great to hear you. I guess the other big question that we were discussing before we came on air, Sherry, is what is the portion of the energy sector that is controlled by private enterprises? We know it's heavily federally regulated, like FERC and NERC, but what do you see as sort of that private sector issue and control problem that your report sort of touches on? So, so I think, you know, for the energy sector, that is an interesting question. I know having worked across a number of the critical infrastructure sectors that the figure that we've used, and honestly, I, I don't know what the origin is. I just know that we've been using it for quite a long time, is that 85% of U.S. critical infrastructure is owned and operated by the private sector, and only 15% is owned and operated by the federal government. I'm not entirely sure that that's true in the energy sector because the Department of Energy and other federal agencies control a lot of the upstream generation. So power marketing administrations, the Tennessee Valley Authority, these are all federal entities, as well as resources like hydroelectric dams are controlled by the Bureau of Reclamation at the Department of Interior. And of course, the Department of Defense has a lot of microgrids inside the fence line at DOD facilities. So we actually have quite a few energy assets, but it's a it's something that we should definitely look into as we're thinking about, again, drawing those lines around who are part of our stakeholder base that we need to engage for the supply chain mission. Yeah, well, whatever the percentage is, though, you make a good point about if the supply chain risk exists in the private sector's handling of its role in that energy sector and in that supply chain, it's still a significant risk. But broadly, let's talk about what the cybersecurity concerns are with the energy sector. And this, to me, was especially illuminating in the report. Let's discuss those generally, but also how they might relate to our national security. Sure. You know, I think for me as a longtime cybersecurity specialist and supply chain specialist, these are not new problems. I think this is a great opportunity to address uh, some of these longstanding problems, particularly the national security aspects of them. Uh, so we all know we've got increasing threats from foreign adversaries and cyber criminals that uh, are growing uh, via software supply chain attacks, of course, ransomware attacks. These things are of increasing importance to the energy sector. We've had some very notable incidents, well-reported, so this should be of no surprise to anyone. Also, you know, when we, whenever we're talking about technology, certainly traditional IT, communications technology, the operational technology that is part of the energy sector, we're really talking about digital supply chains that are globally fragmented. And of course, the technology space is, is highly dynamic, lots of mergers and acquisitions, lots of small innovators that get purchased by larger companies. And what all of that dynamic churn means that increasingly the supply chains for all of these digital goods are really quite opaque. So we really don't know what is in the code base of these giant systems that were 
cobbled together from a variety of different original producers and then repackaged and rebranded and put into a suite of offerings by a different vendor. So illuminating that risk is really going to be key to, to managing it better. And again, we've seen lots of examples of recent supply chain compromises like solar winds, where people just really didn't know what was happening in the product updates that they were experiencing. Also, of course, the source of untrusted software from adversary nations that have ubiquitous intelligence collection on anything that's transiting their network is, again, a long-time area of concern, increasing concern. And of course, this broad set of energy sector industrial-based stakeholders and having different guidelines, standards, requirements across this very broad set of interconnected, interdependent stakeholders also creates challenges because I think it's great if one stakeholder, if an asset owner, electricity substation does a really good job of managing their cyber risk. But if their suppliers or their sub-tier suppliers or other vendors that have access don't, then that becomes the weak link in the chain. So having better baseline standards that can apply to everybody to reflect that interdependence risk is also an emerging area that we want to address. Thanks, Sherry. As you know, the legacy issue you have to deal with is rather immense in this in this particular space. It's clear the president has become focused on this issue and issued a number of executive orders. So what, what did those executive orders task you to do? And what did you focus on in the report? So the, this administration's been very robust in generating executive orders. Of course, you know we've had no shortage of cyber incidents to respond to, and there's just a lot of activity in this space. So this report, the series of reports from the different departments and agencies were done in response to Executive Order 14017, America's Supply Chains. And that's reflective of both the national security concerns with our critical supply chains, but also some of the physical supply chain concerns that we've experienced during the pandemic. I think that nexus of those two issues coming together has really created the impetus for action. And the other major executive order for cybersecurity, of course, is 14028, uh, improving the nation's cybersecurity, which I'm told is the longest executive order ever written. I don't know if I, I've not verified that, but it's quite long and addresses lots of the different conditions that were highlighted by the, the solar winds compromise to include supply chain issues and to include specific direction to improve supply chain illumination through things like the use of software, hardware, bills of materials, and the like. And so a lot of action is happening there. With EO14028, of course, that is the president directing the executive branch to take action to protect their own networks. That does not provide direction to private sector. So that's that other anecdotal 85% that's owned and operated by the private sector. But I think the federal government can be the exemplar of how to improve cybersecurity by taking action. And, and of course, that is the hope with 14028. Well, I sincerely hope that that's right. And I, I hope it'll be taken seriously by the private sector. But as you know, we've, we've been aware of hacks where it was just as simple as not running a systems update, you know, checking to see if software was up to date, that kind of thing. You know, at some point, it might be interesting to see if CEOs pay would ultimately be linked to their maintaining systems correctly and doing the cyber updates and taking it seriously rather than an exclusive focus on shareholder value and ROI or return on investment. It's a radical talk coming from my co-host. 
There you go. Okay. I just put it out there. All right. So kind of break this down to somebody who's never, ever thought about this. Let's talk about what are the five most urgent recommendations, because let's be frank, there were 40 or 40, more than 40. Did they cut you off at 40, Sherry? They said that's <laughs> enough. Um, I think collectively from the 13 different deep dive reports, there were in excess of 40 different policy recommendations. And let me ask you, though, and I know this is a challenge to understate, but what would you say were the five most urgent recommendations? And you're a seasoned national security person for years, but since this war in Ukraine has really captured our attention and, and really upset a majority of Americans, what issues along the lines of supply chain security to the energy sector do you feel have risen, at least in terms of the recommendations as urgent? So I can mostly speak to the, the cyber-related recommendations, but there is a lot of interdependency. I would just say for the overall set of reports, the overall strategy is really focused on the clean energy supply chain. So this is reflective of the desire to ensure that critical supply chains for our clean grid of the future are highlighted, studied, and that we're taking action to reflect those upcoming needs. And that, of course, reflects the, the policy priorities for the administration for climate change. So that's a great highlight point. For cybersecurity, the key actions that we're looking to tee up uh, are really foundational. And again, that starts with this more formally defining the energy sector industrial base to include a broader set of stakeholders than we've necessarily thought about in the past. And, and that is the a foundational element to some downstream recommendations. First among them is to look at the information that we're collecting. And this is a recommendation that is a joint activity on the part of not just the Department of Energy, but the Department of Commerce, the Department of Homeland Security, perhaps some others to collect the right set of information about supply chains of these interdependent supply chains that enable us to baseline the security of supply chains, prioritize critical needs for more security, and then track and measure progress as we are taking policy action in this area. So setting up that definition, setting up the data collection that we're going to need to inform policy in that area, and then how we're going to analyze that once we get it is, is sort of a, a cross-cutting foundational piece of all of this. For cyber in particular, we're looking to engage the government and private sector partners to create more consistent national standards and guidelines to reflect that shared risk across supply chain stakeholders in the energy sector, address that fragmented oversight. We're looking to take more steps to illuminate the risk associated with supply chains. That gets back to uh, some of the software and hardware bill of materials uh, you know, what is in those supply chains for digital goods that are ever larger and ever more complex? How can we work on unpacking the digital ingredients, illuminate the risk, and therefore manage it better? How can we apply our research and development dollars to automating uh, some of these technical solutions so that we can support uh, risk-managed transactions at scale. Other components are when we have a cyber incident, uh, a vulnerability that is found, how can we figure out where that is in, in our critical networks? This dovetails with some of the open source software work that uh, the White House has teed up recently and has uh, underway to look at open source risk 
and what is in those kinds of software libraries that are used ubiquitously by developers everywhere, but not always maintained because they're free. They're a place where compromises might be inserted and get a widespread effect if used by lots of developers. So we're looking across all of those things. And I would be remiss, of course, I didn't mention, you know, continued interest and action across many departments and agencies in looking for ways to develop the technical workforce that can support all of this. For the Department of Energy in particular, our focus on operational technology leads us to want to help engineers, technicians that run industrial control systems and operational technology and help them have a better understanding of cybersecurity and how that that affects the way that they design and operate these control systems. All of this is, I think, part of the priorities that we've outlined in these reports. Thanks, Sherry. One of the aspects of your report that I'd like to highlight, which I recommend everyone to read this report. I've had to write reports. I have to read more of them. And this is really an outstanding report that goes to the heart of many critical issues. And one of the issues that you raise is the thorny semiconductor problem that we're experiencing in the United States today, with over 90% of the chips are made outside of the United States. And when I was in business schools, there were like two dirty words. And the dirty words were industrial policy. I was in business school so long ago when we were worried about Japan and METI. So the issue is, where do you guys break on the semiconductor shortage problem? What do we do with this incredible vulnerability that we're seeing and the dramatic impact it's having on so many production systems? What's the Sherry report answer to this small problem? So, you know, as I'm sure you know, Harvey, semiconductor issues is, is a whole discipline of expertise all unto itself. So I'm, I'm certainly not a semiconductor expert, but just, you know, thinking broadly about issues of industrial policy, it's important to realize that even though we have some acute acknowledgement uh, of shortages brought on by pandemic-related supply chain issues, as, as well as the, the ongoing issues that uh, have been around for a long time, these situations did not get the way they are now overnight, that the offshoring of semiconductor production has been something that's been happening for decades. And there have been quite a number of folks raising those concerns for decades. I'm thinking it's been 30 years now that we've been talking about trusted foundries. So the impetus has always been to favor low-cost options and incentivize and enable that to happen. It didn't get that way overnight, and it's not going to be fixed overnight, unfortunately. I think what is encouraging now is that we've had this confluence of events. Um, to me, the you know continued slow boil of national concern, security concerns that have always been present but has been getting worse recently with more and more cyber incidents and supply chain concerns, but then layering on the pandemic situation that really has highlighted the fragility of a lot of our global technology supply chains. You know, it seems like we now have the necessary conditions for action in this space. So I think there's a lot of policy teed up. There's a lot of concern now, a lot of interest in changing the situation. There's There's been some actions on the part of industry talking about bringing new foundries back to the United States. But these are all, of course, long-term solutions. You don't just build a new foundry in six months or a year. It takes years. And the long journey starts with the first step. And I feel like we are now in the position of taking some of the first steps. I don't know that there is any other solution than the long solution here. Yes. And regarding the production of chips, we do understand from our interview of Tom Quillen with Intel that 
those 90% of chips manufactured outside of the United States are many of them manufactured in Taiwan. And I think we're all concerned about Taiwan's vulnerability uh, to China, given what has just happened in Ukraine. So that's something to think about. I really appreciate this, Sherry. Thank you so much for joining us this evening. We're really glad that you could be here. We hope that Congress can find its way to granting appropriations to build some of this important infrastructure for the sake of national security and sort of the long-term good of the Commonwealth. And I hope they can find their way to agree on this when they agree on so little. This seems like a point on which, other than perhaps naming post offices, this seems like a point on which reasonable adults of of any sort of party affiliation could agree. So we're really glad you were here. One last note, sure. I just want to thank you for all your public service. I know how hard and frustrating it has been to do what you've had to do over the, the years. And I think I speak for many people saying, we're very glad that you've stuck with it. We're very glad you were the partner of energy. And we're glad that maybe this will be one of those critical moments where we can actually move the ball in a positive way. And, uh, you know, you'll be a big foot behind moving that ball. So thanks again for your service. Thanks, RV. And be nice to uh, members of Congress right now because uh, this needs to be done. (laughs) And I just wanted to thank our listeners for tuning in tonight to NSLT. We never take your attention for granted. We'll be back next week with more serious content. We suggest that you share episodes like this with a friend and you have these conversations over coffee. If you're young lawyers, you're the policymakers of the future. If you don't discuss these issues, if you don't take them seriously, I genuinely fear for our country long term, but given how many of you are very cyber savvy, I would like to believe that you'll think about this, read this report, and be ready to, many of you, devote your professional careers to solving these problems for the sake of the country in the long term. Uh, I just want to remind our listeners that you can give us comments and feedback on Twitter at ABA NATSEC. You can also send us an email at nationalsecurityatamericanbar.org. And the Standing Committee on Law and National Security will continue to keep you informed. As you know, current events drive long-term law and policy in the national security space, and knowing what's going on is very important. Don't forget that the lawyers hosting this podcast, including me, including my dear friend Harvey, we're always here in our individual capacity and not on behalf of any agency or firm. Thanks for listening. But before we completely sign off, the 2021-2022 edition of the U.S. Intelligence Community Law Sourcebook is now ready and available on our committee website. This is our eighth edition, and it's praised by General Hayden as the most authoritative, comprehensive, and up-to-date compendium of U.S. intelligence law ever, and by others in intelligence as particularly worthy of space on every national security practitioner's desk, whether in government, private practice, or law school. And it's 25% off if you use the code ICLS25. It's linked in the description to this episode, along with the promo code, so definitely check it out. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy.